Well, if you were here last week, you may realize where this sermon's about to go, but uh, we're talking about the, the story of Samson found in the book of uh, Judges in the, in the Old Testament. This is way back, way back before Israel had a king. And so God would raise up these judges to kind of rule over Israel and, and proclaim his uh, commandments and his judgment on the people. So if you are here uh, and you already forgot, kind of like I tend to do around Wednesday, uh, or if you weren't here, uh, I'll just get you caught up real quick on what was going on uh, in the story of Samson last week. So uh, Samson is an Israelite who was uh, born to a barren mother, a mother who couldn't conceive children, and uh, God has called him to be a, a judge of Israel, in fact, Israel's final judge, and he is given the specific purpose of delivering Israel from their Philistine oppressors. And God gifts him, in order to aid him in this mission, he gifts him with great strength. But Samson is, although a hero, he's still just a man. And one day he's walking through the Philistine city of Timnah and he sees a Philistine woman and she catches his eye. She looks right in his eyes. And so he goes home and he demands that his parents go and get her for him. And in the, in the midst of all this, we identified uh, three attitudes that make the strong weak. The first attitude is, I want it, powered by, by lust, or I deserve it, an attitude of entitlement, or I can handle it, pride. Now, just kind of hold on to those three attitudes, those three ideas, and keep them in the back of your mind, because uh, they're going to really be important as we go through the rest of Samson's story. So we're going to pick up with uh, Samson having finally convinced his parents that he doesn't want to marry an Israelite woman. He wants this Philistine woman who looks right to, uh, in his eyes. So they are heading down towards the city of Timnah in order that his parents might come up with an arrangement with her parents so that Samson and this woman can, can be engaged. And on their way there, they're traveling through a vineyard, and Samson is suddenly attacked by a lion. But the Spirit of God comes upon him, and he's able to kill this lion with his bare hands, and then he kind of goes on about his business, like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm strong, it's, it's what I do. Uh, so they, they head home, uh, down to the city, parents do their thing, and, and he goes home. So uh, in Judges 14, verses 8 through 11, uh, this is sometime after that, uh, it says this, sometime later... When he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. And in it, he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. So he scooped out the honey with his hands and he ate it as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some and they ate it too. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now his father went down to see the woman and there Samson held a feast as was customary for young men. When the people saw him, they chose 30 men to be his companions. <laughs> 
So this is one of those things that I read, and you're probably like, hey, why did you just read that to us? It's just a bunch of, like, random descripting stuff that, like, we really, it's not important to the story. But it is really important if we, if we take a look at, at this and fully kind of understand what's going on in this, in this part of Samson's story. Things that are going to help us to understand why Scripture is telling us all this unnecessary stuff. The first thing is that uh, a long time before this, God had forbidden the Israelites from intermarrying with their surrounding nations, which included the Philistines. But here he is, heading on down the way to marry a Philistine woman. Strike one, right? This is kind of... Samson saying, hey, yeah, God, you you said that, but I saw her, she looked good, I want her, so I'm going to do what I want. So he's he's acting out in in that lust thing that we had identified. Now, if you also maybe remember from last week, Samson took a a special vow uh, called the Nazarite vow for life, which meant that he vowed to God not to uh, touch dead things, drink, or get a haircut. Seems kind of random, but okay. But here we see that Samson has broken that vow by handling the carcass of a dead lion. Uh, The same lion that he had killed earlier with his bare hands because, well, it had inside of it something that he wanted. It had honey. He saw it. He wanted it, so he took it. Again, he's acting out in kind of like a different manifestation of lust. So uh, that's like strike two here. And then he commits like the worst sin that you can do by lying to his parents. I mean, it was by omission, which apparently that I found out at a young age that that too is a lie. Uh, you know, my mom made sure that I knew that that was also wrong. Um, But he justifies it by saying, like, hey, um, you know what? I deserve this honey because, I mean, it was inside of a lion that I killed, right? It is, it's mine. I I deserve it. So it's like strike three. If he was playing baseball, he'd already be out and the story would be over. He's acting now in an entitlement here. And you think that'd be enough. But the story goes on. When he gets to where he's going, he prepares a wedding feast. Now, a wedding feast back then was like a a four- to seven-day shindig that included a large element of drinking in celebration of the impending consummation of the marriage that would occur on the final night of the feast. So Samson breaks another portion of his Nazarite vow, but, I mean, hey... He's getting married. He's, he's entitled to let loose and have a few drinks with the guys, right? So that's like strike four. Maybe one of those other ones was a foul ball or something. But uh, Samson is already in hot water, and the story continues on as he gets himself into more trouble in the following verses. So this is Judges 14, 12 through 14. Samson's talking to his wedding companions, like his bridal party. He says, hey, guys, let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. 
If you can't tell me the answer, then you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. And he replied, out of the eater, something to eat. and Out of the strong, something sweet. And for three days, they could not give him an answer. So part of these ancient feasts was uh, this element of gambling. It's kind of innocent, just the telling of riddles for a wager. And although it, it seems kind of just what guys do, it's kind of innocent, it's again like a pagan practice at a pagan festival, something that was meant to be avoided by God's people. This is, this is Samson's pride. Out of pride, he says, you know what, I'm going to outsmart these stupid Philistines, and I'm going to get 30 new sets of clothes to wear after I get married. That's a strike, however many we're up to, and I think that uh, it's important to just put a name on what's really happening here. It's disobedience. Samson is willfully disobeying God's law for his people, God's individual commands and desires to Samson to uphold this Nazarite vow. Now, the entire story of Judges is a story of Israel's sin cycles, which look like this. Devotion, disobedience, disaster, and then finally deliverance. And if we're honest with ourselves and we take a realistic view of our lives, we know that this is, this is how we operate too. This is our story, and it's also Samson's story. He was born, set apart, devoted to God. But as we have just seen in uh, this last little bit of his story, he has become disobedient. So I'm sure that you can kind of figure out where this is going next. The short of of what happens is uh, that Samson's groomsmen, they can't figure out the riddle. So on the evening before the final day of the feast, they approach and threaten his future wife and her family. So she goes to Samson and she cries and they have like their first fight and kind of, I don't know, like a smart man, Samson finally gives in and he tells her the answer to the riddle. And then she goes on to tell the men who in turn bring the correct answer to Samson. And he loses. See, his act of pride now has a pretty big consequence. He owes 30 sets of clothes to these guys. So verses 19 and 20 say this. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home, and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended to him at the feast. So Samson uses, or honestly misuses, his gift of strength and anger in order to pay for the consequences of his own actions. The result is that his wife was married off to his best man. That sucks. (laughs) But this is the sad reality that plays out in the life of the church all the time. The, The misuse of power and gifts that God has given us for personal gain still happens today. 
We only have to look at the headlines that surround uh, certain denominations, and sadly sometimes even our own, to see uh, those whom God has gifted with teaching and preaching abuse the authority that is inherent in them and cause great harm to lives, to the church, and also to the world that looks at us. And Samson's story is one of those stories that it's often told. I remember hearing about Samson as a child. And when you grow up and you actually read the scripture and you don't just hear the children's minister uh, tell you the nice parts of the story, you start to think to yourself, what is going on here? (laughs) This is crazy. This guy is not good. He's doing, like, things all wrong. But right before he does a whole bunch of stuff wrong... There's this like weird thing that says the spirit of the Lord powerfully came upon him. See, in the, in the age of the church, we're taught and rightly taught that the spirit does not lead us into temptation. It's, it's our guide. It's the, the manifestation of God dwelling inside of us and among us. But prior to Christ's resurrection, the Spirit was not poured out into believers the way that it is now. God's Spirit was given to specific people for specific purposes in order to achieve specific goals. Even during the the time of the construction of the tabernacle, God chose an artisan, like an artist, named Basilel, so that He could design the tabernacle exactly the way God wanted it. And it says in that scripture that God's spirit was poured out on him. So the spirit of the Lord comes powerfully upon Samson to enable him to access his gift of strength. But this is not to say that everything that happened after it says the spirit of the Lord came upon him was something that God was directing him to do. It's not like God took control of Samson and compelled him to go out, kill 30 people, and steal their clothes so that he could pay off a debt that he incurred because he was a sinner. Samson misuses his gifting to seek vengeance because he's angry. And this is far from the last time that he'll do that. So the story goes on. Samson goes back to his would-be wife and finds out, oh, she's already married to somebody else. Great. His reaction is to do what anyone would do. He lights a bunch of foxes on fire and sets them uh, through the city, and they burn down the entire food supply. No, that's not what we would do, right? But... (laughs) But he's, he's angry. He causes a, a great struggle to the people of the city of Timnah. And the Philistines essentially and quite naturally declare war against him. Not only do they declare war against him, but they burn his would-be wife and her father at the stake. Yeah, the Old Testament is weird. But Samson's response to this is, since you've acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. And he attacks them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Edom. So the Philistines amass an army and they encamp outside of Judah, insisting that Samson be delivered to them. 
the Israelites come and they find Samson and they ask him, like, hey, why have you done these things to incite the Philistines to anger? Chapter 15, verse 11 says this, Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? And he answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. I just want to hang out there for, for a moment because... Um, even though I, I don't have any children yet, uh, but you, if you do, you, you know this scenario. So if you, you hang around children's and youth ministry or just your own kids and their friends long enough, uh, you see how this scenario plays out. You're doing whatever it is that you're doing. You're not paying full attention, but you hear and sense a noticeable disturbance in the area. So you quickly turn around and find that your kid has punched, kicked, or bit another kid. So you go, you take them away, and you say, what were you thinking? Why, why have you done this? And their response, they kicked me first. They bit me first. They hit me first. Or when you, you get up to middle schoolers and high schoolers, it's often a war of terrible words. But the same excuse tends to come up. Well, they told so-and-so this about me, and it's not true. Or they posted on whatever this about me. Or uh, they said blank about me, and I'm just paying them back. And this continues on into adulthood. We seek to wound those who wound us. Simple disagreements over politics or parenting styles or lifestyle choices or even theology turn into a war of personal attacks that in the end leaves us wondering like, man, how did, how did, we, how did we get here? And well, the, the answer is because hurt people hurt people. And the reality is that this all kind of links back to lust, entitlement, and pride. Mainly, whenever somebody wounds one of these defects in our character, our natural response is to get angry. See, when someone says that we can't have what we want or physically prevents us from getting our way, we get angry. See, they're, they're obstructing our natural drive to fulfill our lustful pre- pleasures, to complete the cycle of I see it, I want it, and now I'm going to go get it. It can be something as directly linked to physical pleasure as, you know, like the boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife of the person that we desire. But this can also be something as trivial as like the store doesn't have the thing that I want in stock and now I'm mad about it because online when I checked 45 minutes ago it said you had one, but you can't find it. Or the finance guy at the auto dealership who says, hey, thanks for coming by, but you don't make enough money to buy an $80,000 car. We're not going to give you that money. We get angry. And wounded entitlement looks a lot like this too. Since we think that we deserve what we don't receive, we blame everyone else for taking away from us what we feel we clearly deserve. You know, last week, the University of Florida released uh, their admissions decisions. And entitlement 
says this. says, I didn't get in because they let all these other less qualified people in. Or you know what? I didn't get in because, you know what? I am not a minority and they just let all the minorities in. This thinking breeds animosity, it breeds racism, and a general wounded superiority complex. And wounded pride looks a lot like these other two. See, if pride says, hey, I can, I can handle it, when we fail or sense that failure is impending, it, it hurts our self-esteem. And this is perhaps the the most cunning of the three because pride thrives on putting off an image that we're strong, we're smart, and we're capable. So failure or an inability to handle certain situations damages our self-esteem because the self-worth of the proud is directly linked to our ability to sell the idea to others that we are strong, that we are smart, and we are capable. So we've got to cling to that and do whatever is necessary to keep up the act for as long as possible. When finally we reach the end and we've got to confess that, man, we don't have it in us to handle every situation, we get mad, we get angry. Mostly we get mad at ourselves, but it comes out of us sideways and we hurt the people who are just trying to help those whose help we see as an attack on our ability to care for ourselves. We act as if it's their fault. They are the ones who have prevented us from handling our own business. And this all leads through a cycle of giving people what they have given to us, right? An eye for an eye. It's it's the oldest system of justice seen across the ancient world and transcends culture. And it makes sense. I mean, you hurt me, I hurt you back. Whether you actually hurt me or you just hurt me in my head. See, it's so basic and natural that you don't need to teach it to your kids. They, are, they already know. They hit me. So I hit them back. And when we grow up and put a name on this, it's called retributive justice. And I'm not going to uh, stand here and tell you that the Bible doesn't have like a chunk of it that specifically condones retributive justice if you just look at it. Exodus 21, 24 says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So I'm not going to tell you that that's not in there, because clearly it is. But I will tell you that it's not the entire story. This is a verse which is just so gladly plucked out of context by anyone who has a personal grievance or who wants to lead a political crusade. This, this verse was written by Moses within a larger section of scripture that outlines the Israeli court system. A system of justice that oversaw personal grievances. And when the Pharisees of Jesus' day were also using this scripture to justify personal grievances, Jesus had stern words for them to clarify this portion of the law. And this is Matthew five thirty-eight through 42. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. 
But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, well, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus is saying, hey, retributive justice is not only wrong, but it's not necessary. Jesus is saying, I am the judge. And the Apostle Paul illustrates this in Romans 12, 19, when he says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And Paul is quoting the book of Deuteronomy. And if we believe what we claim to believe as Christians, that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, then he's right. We have no need nor any right to take matters into our own hands. In fact, exacting personal vigilante type revenge or justice is just us taking on the role of God. And I think that we know what God has to say about people who do that. Now, with that being said, I'm not proposing that I or even God is against systems that are put in place to distribute and enforce justice in the world, as long as they are pursuing goodness as well. Though they are far from God's perfect justice, they have been put in place to free us up as individuals from the responsibility and the burden of performing individual acts of retribution. All right, that was kind of hung out there for a long time, but can we all agree that like hurting people because they hurt you is wrong? Hitting somebody because they hit you first still doesn't make it right. Okay, cool. Well, back to Samson. So, The rest of this episode in Samson's life plays out like this. The Israelites respond to Samson's appeal to them to justify his vengeance by telling him that they are there to tie him up and deliver him to the Pharisees, or to the Philistines. Samson's like, hey, just promise me that you guys aren't going to kill me. And they say like, okay, we won't kill you. So they tie him up and hand him over to the Philistines to suffer uh, what's going to be a pretty awful death. I mean, he did some, some nasty stuff to them. But we have to remember that God has a special plan for Samson. Samson is meant to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. We also have to remember that the Philistines, they're a bad bunch of folks. They're actively oppressing God's people and they indeed need to be dealt with. So although it seems kind of countercultural in our day and age, uh, this is what happens next. The Spirit of God comes upon Samson, and with the strength that it gives him, he breaks free of his bindings, finds a donkey's jawbone, and slays a thousand men. It's pretty gruesome, or awesome, depends on how you look at these kinds of things. And then uh, the scripture goes on to finish with this in Judges 15, 18 through 20. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord. 
you have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. And when Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the spring was called En-Hakor, and is still there in Lehi. And Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. You see, God was not done with Samson. He still had plans for him. And when Samson finally turns his gaze and his praise and his dependence back on God, God delivers him. And so one of Samson's sin cycles is completed. Now, I wish that I could tell you that this was the last one, but if you come back next week, you'll find out that it's not. But here's the reality of it all. What does this mean for us? For Samson, this whole debacle really began with a handful of bad honey. First, it was a bad honey that he was never supposed to chase after and marry. And on his way to get a handful of that honey, he got a handful of actual honey that he was never meant to handle. But this is, this is how it always begins. And I mean, we can't really blame Samson because he could not have foreseen the consequences of his disobedience the moment that he first demanded that his parents go and, go and get me that woman. Or the moment that he stuck his hand into that dead lion to retrieve a tasty treat. Or at the beginning of any of his other various escapades. But here's what happened. Instead of fessing up, knowing that he had done wrong and breaking the cycle, he continued on down. And every time that things didn't work out, he got angry and he blamed everyone else around him for the problems that he had created. He got angry and he went about killing in an actified, a justified act of vengeance. So let me ask you this. What's your handful of bad honey? We've all got things in our life that looked good, things that were right in our own eyes. And we saw them, we wanted them, and we took them. Whether our lust told us to take that honey or our entitlement or our pride. We did it. The question is, are you going to drop the honey and turn back to God? Or are you going to just keep on holding on to it and continue on down a dark road that leads through the rest of the sin cycle with sticky fingers? Are you going to spend your days angry with others and angry with yourself, seeking to justify your continued spiral down into anger and resentment and bitterness because you just can't admit that the honey in your hand wasn't meant for you to take in the first place? You see, Christ didn't come and die for us to live this way. He came to deliver us from this this cycle that enslaves us. But he doesn't deliver those who don't lay down their arms. 
who don't drop the honey and say, God, Jesus, I, I give up. Deliver me. Take this handful of bad honey and replace it with the sweetness of your ways. Remove, remove my wants, my desires, my habit of living a life that is right in my own eyes. And give me a heart that seeks what is right in yours. You see, during the time of the judges, Israel might not have had a king. But we do. We are in the time of the church. We have a king, and he reigns in heaven, and he reigns in our hearts, and his name is Jesus. We have to submit ourselves to his kingship over us. Lay down the honey and be delivered from the disasters that we ourselves have created. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, the story of Samson. We thank you for stories of people in the Bible who, when we're honest, remind us about who we are. But we thank you that, that you have come to deliver us from the messes that we make. That you have come and made it so that disaster doesn't hold us anymore. God, we pray that we would seek your face and seek your spirit to guide us. Guide us towards your plan for us as individuals and as a church. That you would just convict us to to leave behind that bad honey that we hold that holds us hostage God we know that that you are the deliverer we know that each of us is created with a specific purpose we just ask that you would help us to see and seek after that through the power of your spirit living in us We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.